Live from Lemert Park, USA, I'm Tavis Smiley, and you're listening to KBLA Talk 1580. So glad to see you and me back in stride again. Our phone number, 1-800-920-1580, 1-800-920-1580. All of our socials can be found at KBLA 1580. That's Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube, everything at KBLA 1580. Let me also invite you right now to download our app at KBLA 1580. Download the app and listen to us live Anywhere in the world, in real time, only by having our app, though, at KBLA 1580. If you've not downloaded it, please download it right now. Should you miss us any day in real time, check out the podcast of our program by going to the app, the website, Anchor, Spotify, Apple, so many places to get the podcast of this program and listen at your leisure. Should you miss us any day in real time, but I am delighted to have you along live with us today for the next three hours. You can also watch the live stream of this program by tapping on the KBLA TV icon on our app, or by going to our YouTube channel. And let me also invite you to follow me on Facebook and Instagram at The Real Tavis Smiley and get Twitter updates at Tavis Smiley. Another good show on tap for you today. In our second hour, a conversation with noted scholar Dr. Lewis Gordon about nihilism, uh, the notion, that is, which denies the existence of any objective meaning or purpose in life, a belief, then, that can have Uh, A profound impact on individuals and communities that tend to experience oppression or marginalization. You see where I'm going here? You see where I'm going here? Okay, since we're on the same page now, then how do black folk in particular understand, experience, embody, and most importantly, respond to the challenge of black nihilism? I expect a rich dialogue with Dr. Lewis Gordon in hour two. In our third hour, May just happens to be Mental Health Awareness Month, and the timing, uh, to my mind at least, could not be more propitious for a conversation about the choking death of a black man named Jordan Neely. You probably saw this story on a New York um, subway train last week, and then several days later, an incident in Atlanta, which saw a 24-year-old black man named Dion Patterson open fire inside a midtown medical building, killing one person, injuring many others. Both men, both black men, were struggling with mental health issues. Neely was shattered, we are told, by the murder of his mother, and Patterson's mother apologized profusely to the families of those slain and hurt in Atlanta, saying that her son was angry. The doctors would not give him his anti-anxiety medication. It's it's all too much, uh, but a conversation nonetheless with LaShawn Francis about the rising concern for the mental health of young men like Jordan Neely, Dion Patterson, and black youth everywhere. But in this first hour today, let's talk about several trending political, social, and cultural issues with leading scholar and best-selling author Dr. Carol Anderson, who I am honored to have back on this program. Dr. Anderson, how are you today? I am fine. How are you? If I complained, I'd be an ingrate. Uh, I'm glad to be here with you. Uh, glad we have an hour. There's a whole lot to talk about. Let me start. I, I think the, audit, the audience may be getting tired of this, and I apologize for it because I'm getting tired of it as well. Uh, and nonetheless, um, because this is talk radio and we cover news, I, I, I can't avoid it, although I could, I guess. But I don't want to. Um, but every Monday, I, I mean, I've lost count now. Every Monday, uh, Dr. Anderson, it seems that I start this program uh, updating people on another mass shooting, uh, trying to unpack yet another mass shooting. The audience has gotten used to this because it happens like literally every weekend. I can't start the week without addressing another one of these um, mass shooting issues. And so, uh, again, today is day 128. The audience is used to hearing this. We're day 128 into this year, 199 mass shootings now. 128 days into the year. 
199 mass shootings. And I always say every week, sadly, do the math for yourself. Having said that, I want to get at this topic a little bit differently today with Dr. Anderson because she, um, uh, because she's all that and then some. Her approach to discussing this, I think, uh, is different, can be different, will be different in this hour, at least for the first few minutes at least, before I move on to some other issues. There's a lot to talk about today, trust and believe. Um, but I've heard you talk in the past, Dr. Anderson, and I want to get you, give you a chance to, uh, to order and practice with this audience. I've heard you talk in the past about how anti-blackness drives U.S. gun culture. And it drives right-wing assault on our democracy. But I want to start with that first part uh, and connect dots in a way that perhaps we have not on this program uh, regarding this issue of guns. Uh, talking about how anti-blackness actually drives U.S. gun culture. With that, I, I yield the microphone to you, Dr. Anderson. Uh, thank you so much, Ed. So I look at the, the creation of the Second Amendment because it's the thing that you hear consistently about we've got our Second Amendment rights, and no, you are not taking away my constitutional Second Amendment rights as the discussion happens over gun safety legislation. And so I went hunting for this Second Amendment right, and what I found was that early on in the 17th century in Virginia, and in South Carolina, you would see laws banning the African descendant from having access to guns and having access to ammunition, access to weapons. And as I started reading around, what I saw was this incredible fear of black people. And it's not just a fear of the enslaved, although that was a large part of it. It was the fear of black people. It was defining black people as inherently dangerous, inherently criminal, inherently violent, and inherently a threat to the white community. That thread comes through from the 17th century till today. And one of the things that we see in the creation then of the, of the Second Amendment was when the Constitution was drafted, by James Madison, what he did was he put the militia under federal control. Now, the militia had, as we get this narrative about how they are there to defend against a foreign invasion, well, they really weren't very good at that during the Revolutionary War. Um, how they're there for domestic tyranny, they really weren't very good at that either. What they were really good at was putting down slave revolts. They were very good at that. Mm. And so when Madison put control of the militia under the federal government, and that was to provide some level of systemization about the ways that the militia were trained, the, the slaveholders in Virginia, the anti-federalists like Patrick Henry and George Mason, threatened to scuttle the U.S. Constitution unless they got protection. Because they said, that militia, we can't trust that the feds with Pennsylvania and Massachusetts that had basically banished slavery from their midst, we can't trust that they will send the militia down to protect us mm. when the slaves rise up against us. We can't trust them. We have to have that control. And if we don't get it, we're going to hold another constitutional convention. And James Madison was scared out of his wits that that would happen. They would scuttle all of the work that he had done to pull that thing together. And so he went into that first Congress drafting a Bill of Rights. 
because that was about containing the power of the federal government. And when you think about that Bill of Rights, freedom of the press, freedom of religion, freedom of speech, the right not to be illegally searched and seized, the right to a speedy and fair trial, the right not to have cruel and unusual punishment, the right to a well-regulated militia, that's the outlier. That's the bribe to the South to not scuttle the U.S. Constitution and scuttle the United States of America. Let me jump in and right so there. Let me, hold, hold that thought one second. I, I hate to interrupt you because you're on a roll. Uh, let me do this, and we'll come right back to that point of that being the outlier, the right to this militia, this this outlier, as uh, as you call it. I want to come to that in just a moment. Just getting started here uh, in our first hour, I guess, Dr. Karen Anderson, uh, we are talking once again, sadly, about these mass shootings. Day 128, 199 mass shootings, um, as you all saw. Um, the gunman uh, in Texas uh, who killed eight people. Investigators this morning are examining uh, this Texas gunman's white supremacist views after he killed these eight people. Here again, another mass shooting. Here again, another white supremacist uh, just killing people randomly and at will. Uh, we'll continue with Dr. Carol Anderson when we come forward on KBLA Talk 1580. Let's unpack a little bit more with Tavis Smiley. The conversation continues right now. Right now, right Dr. Now. Anderson, uh, now back to that outlier. Take it away. Yes. And so when you think about it, that, that Second Amendment is an outlier in the Bill of Rights. And what it is signaling is that sitting in the Bill of Rights is the right to contain, control black people, the right to deny African Americans their rights. And that right then courses through American history, that fear of black people. We see it um, with the, the Uniform Militia Act of 1792, which says that, the, that the, it's a federal law that said that all able-bodied white males between the ages of 18 and 45 must join the militia and must have a gun. We see it in terms of the Dred Scott decision. That, and that was that decision where we know that key phrase, that the black man has no rights that a white man is bound to respect. Mm-hmm. But when you look at the details in that, that ruling, it talks about black people have never been citizens of the United States. They weren't at the founding. They weren't because they're not able to carry the mail. They're not able, and he said, if they were citizens, they would be able to go from state to state, and they would be able to have guns. Mm. When we look at the end of the Civil War and the rise of the Black Codes, which were about reinstalling slavery by another name, What you see in there is not only the control of labor in the black codes, but the the order to disarm the black population. Blackness is the default threat in American society, and blackness with guns is an exponential threat. How how does that that first of all I I, I feel like I'm auditing your class at Emory uh, because <laughs> you, you're breaking this down you're breaking this down for us in a way that even even I can understand and follow um, but but I'm wondering how it is uh, as you draw this straight line how it is that that anti-blackness um, 
is undergirding, if you will, driving, if you will, gun culture today, 2023? Absolutely. So um, there's an author named Jonathan Metzl, and he wrote a book, Dying of Whiteness. And one of the things that he did was he went into rural Missouri, uh, which was in a county that was predominantly white. And he sat in on um, support groups. And they were support groups for families that had experienced gun violence in the family. And so then the issue of gun safety legislation came up. And they said, absolutely not. Because those people from St. Louis will come down here and try to take everything that we have. Our guns are the only things that protect us. Those people from St. Louis, mm. that, that is those black people. Mm-hmm. Remember the McCluskeys, mm-hmm. the family where Black Lives Matter were peacefully protesting, and they came out on their lawn pointing their guns at them? Mm-hmm. And they were embraced by the right wing. They were embraced by the Republicans. Because Black Lives Matter is the threat, and the McCluskeys were defending America, and I'm putting that in quotes, against that threat. Mm. And when you look at the language that is used um, for this expansion of access to guns, so the removing of, of licensing, the removing of registration, the removing of, of, of practice, of training, you often hear it in terms of threat, threat. So let's take, for instance, the U.S. Supreme Court's recent decision, the Bruin decision, coming out of New York. And that decision reads, you know, the police can't be there to protect you all the time. And you're walking down the streets of New York, and you could easily be raped, you could be mugged, you could be murdered. All that is protecting you is your gun. When we think about the ways that urban, crime, blackness are linked in the psyche of of American society, and that that protection against urban, crime, blackness is the gun. This is why we're seeing what we're seeing. Um, Jennifer Eberhardt, who is an incredible psychologist, out of Stanford, did this study where she cued her participants with a picture of someone who was African-American. And then she showed them really blurry images of objects. And it took them, boom, quickly to say, oh, that object is a gun, that object is a knife. When she cued them with a face of somebody who was white, it took them a lot longer. Mhm. Mhm. Yeah. What what then what then do you make of um the politics cuz you're putting your finger on this now uh with the New York example um because um there are many people who were shocked uh in California of course where this radio station is flagship uh we were impacted by this gun decision of course in New York uh on concealed and carry. So what do you make these days uh, of the politics of guns, the politics of gun violence. The politics is that 
is that it is seen as the way to deal with the great replacement, mm. which is that really racist theory that all of these invaders and all of these black people, all of these brown people are are replacing the white community, therefore replacing America, because they have identified America and Americans as white only, with a few stragglers in there, um, what they used to call in the days honorary whites. (laughs) And that that great replacement is, is frankly what drove the, the, the killer who went up to Buffalo, scouted out the lone grocery store in the black neighborhood when it would have the most number of people in there and then went hunting. Mm. Yeah, and it's clear that it was the great replacement theory that was driving him. Yeah. And so the politics of this is that this is a way to protect white America. And what we have is a Faustian bargain in this nation where we have said, because of our fear of black people, we are willing to be unsafe in our schools, unsafe in our churches, unsafe in our shopping malls, Mm. unsafe at at our amusement parks, unsafe at our nightclubs, Unsafe, 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 because the fear of black people, we have to have more guns than we have people in the United States of America. How then, let me let me pivot, uh, if not so gently, um, how then do I read uh, more expressly and, and more interestingly, I think, how does Dr. Carol Anderson read uh, the data that suggests that uh, one of the fastest growing groups uh, or the group uh, purchasing guns the fastest in this country uh, happen to be black people. That black mm-hmm. people, black people hearing, not just hearing what you're saying, but of course living every day, feeling the threat. Um, the earlier point that blackness is the default threat. I'm going to come back to that. I promise you. That was a rich line. We're going to unpack that in, in a few minutes here. But 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 how do I read? How do you read the fact that black people are uh, are buying guns at such a fast clip? Pardon the pun. Should I be heartened by that or frightened by that? Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I, I get it. Heart, heartened, I, heartened and frightened. Okay, go ahead. Take it away. Yes. And so what I mean by that is that what the history shows us is that black people know that the violence is directed against them. Mm-hmm. And so they buy weapons, they access weapons to protect themselves. What that does, though, we saw it um, in Cincinnati in 1840, the early 1840s. We saw it again in um, Atlanta in 1906. We saw it again in uh, Knoxville in 1920-ish. We saw it with Tulsa 1921. We saw it with Elaine, Arkansas 1919. When black, we saw it with Columbia, Tennessee, 1946. When black folks go to defend themselves, we saw it with the Black Panthers. When black folks go to defend themselves, it leads to heightened violence, mm. and it leads to a rationale. Well, you know, they were armed. Okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and you begin to think through how black folks have lived through the Trump years. 
the un, uh, unalloyed white supremacist years where it was really clear the expendability of black people. And that sense of all of the killings that have happened to black people and that there is no one there to protect them. And so it was something that Ida B. Wells said at the turn of the century that a Winchester rifle is basically the best friend that a black person has to protect them from what the law will not. Mm. And, and so black folks are in this doggone catch-22 where their simple being is the threat. So you think about how many times a cop shoots somebody who is black and unarmed, but saying, I was afraid. Mm. And then you think about how many times they shoot somebody black who had a gun, like Philando Castile, but wasn't pointing it at anybody. And it's like, you had a right to be afraid. Mm. So it's, Damned if you do, damned if you don't. I, w- I want to ask this question now. I'm going to get my clock here. I know that um, you couldn't do justice to it in 90 seconds. So let me just tell you <laughs> <laughs> where I want to go, Dr. Anderson, when we get on the other side of uh, news, traffic, and sports. Given what you've already laid out for us, um, just powerfully, brilliantly, and um, I mean, she's, she's erudite. Uh, and I enjoy talking to her all the time, uh, Dr. Carol Anderson. But I want to come back to this notion. Uh, I believe I have this phrase right. Did you, was the line, Dr. Anderson, did I, did I write it down correctly, that blackness is the default threat? Was that your line? Is that correct? That is correct. Okay. I want to interrogate that. Um, beyond okay. the issue of guns, we've talked about the gun thing, and we could talk about it ad infinitum, ad nauseum, and I'm sure I'll be talking about it sadly again next Monday if not before them, given these mass shootings, in case you were under a rock this weekend or on vacation or just doing something else this weekend and missed the story um, about another mass shooting in Texas. Um, They are now investigating this Texas gunman's white supremacist views after killing eight people uh, at a shopping mall. Um, Another mass killing uh, just days after another event where people had been shot in mass. So it, it continues, as I said earlier, 128 days into the year. 199 mass shootings. I've done as much with that as I think I can do in this hour. When I come forward with Dr. Anderson, I want to come back, though, and interrogate this phrase that blackness is the default threat in this country. Blackness is the default threat in this country. What does that mean um, in our demos, in our democracy? What does that mean um, beyond the issue of guns that blackness is always the default threat? You're listening to Dr. Carolyn Anderson on KBS. Broadcasting live from Lower Park, USA. Welcome back to your home for unapologetically progressive radio. KBLA Talk 1580. I'm Tavis Smiley. Glad to have you listening to KBLA Talk 1580 on this Monday. Our phone number 1-800-920-1580. 1-800-920-1580. So please now to continue this conversation with the Charles Howard Candler Professor of African American Studies at Emory University an author of so many books, but including uh, the bestseller, White Rage, The Unspoken Truth of Our Racial Divide, uh, Dr. Carol Anderson. Uh, and um, again, just uh, pleased to have her uh, on this day. And the timing, again, couldn't be more propitious uh, to have her here because of what is in the news. In case, again, you've not heard, another mass shooting this weekend uh, in Texas, uh, eight people killed there. Um, I've said it a couple of times already, but in case you've just tuned in uh, and want to know, we are on what did I say, day 128 
199 mass shootings. Um, so it continues unabated, sadly, in this country. We talked about that um, in the first half hour. I want to turn now um, to interrogate this phrase that Dr. Anderson used earlier in this conversation because it 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 um, it encompasses so much. Uh, beyond the notion of anti-blackness driving U.S. gun culture, which she unpacked beautifully in the first half hour. Um, when you say that blackness is the default threat in this country, that blackness is the default threat in this country, um, beyond the issue of guns, um, unpack that for me, Dr. Anderson. That threat, for instance, think about the January 6th insurrection and that right to vote. So that January 6th insurrection where you had all of these folk storming the U.S. Capitol to overthrow the vote, the legitimate vote, to reinstall Donald Trump. And what you heard was the election was stolen. It was stolen. When you hear it was stolen, and then they begin to identify where it was stolen. So you had Newt Gingrich former congressman out of Georgia, um, say they stole the election in Atlanta. They stole the election in Philadelphia. They stole the election in Milwaukee. They've also talked about they stole the election in Detroit. When you think about those areas, they didn't say they stole the election in Salt Lake City. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> they identified cities that have some... Um, so sizable black populations, and they identify black people as the as, as the thieves of this American democracy. That black people stole this election, they stole this democracy, and the ellipsis from good, honest, hardworking white people. Mm. And so, the threat is having black people vote. It was the threat that Mississippi identified in 1890 when it crafted new legislation to have election integrity, to end corruption at the ballot box. And the way you ended corruption at the ballot box was that you removed black people from being able to vote. It was the same kind of language that was used in North Carolina and in, in as they rewrote their election laws to remove black people from being able to vote. And it's the same kind of language that was used in Georgia. And so this is in the era of Jim Crow. Now think about what happened after that insurrection, after that bloody insurrection. It didn't chasten folks. Instead, they moved forward to try to eliminate black people from being able to access the ballot box, because that's the threat. And so you've got this move against absentee ballots. You've got this move um, against drop boxes, the things that African-Americans use to readily access the ballot box. And notice that they use the language of fraud, 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 voter fraud, voter mm -hmm. fraud, voter fraud. But when they went hunting for it, they couldn't find it. They couldn't find it. Black people were not the threat but they are defined as the threat to American democracy. Mm -hmm. 
Speaking of, uh, there are two or three things that pop in my head right now. When you talk about uh, blackness as the default threat uh, in this country, and you mentioned Georgia, you mentioned a few things that I can tie in. Let me do it right quick. One, speaking of Georgia, um, I'm following this story and I'm hoping to get uh, Fannie Willis as a guest on this program in the near future. Uh, she won't talk about the Trump investigation, which I understand. Uh, but she's starting to be a bit more vocal about um, this move being made by Georgia Governor Brian Kemp, um, mm. given that he signed this bill. And of course, you're in Atlanta, so you know this well. Uh, the governor signs a bill that could remove local prosecutors and DAs from their jobs. So speaking again about blackness as the default threat, you have Trump pushing back against Alvin Bragg, uh, the Manhattan DA who has him under the spotlight right now. You have Trump and others pushing back against Letitia James, uh, the attorney general in New York State. Uh, you have them pushing back against Fannie Willis in Georgia, black D.A. Uh, it is fascinating in this conversation, especially to hear uh, you lay out blackness as a default threat, but also to consider the flip side of that, which is the ways in which we have made progress in this country. A lot more to be done. No, no doubt about it. Racism is still the most intractable issue. But we're at a point now where there are black people, Negroes, who are now with uh, who had not have the, the capacity and the authority uh to to hold accountable a former white male president that's a that's a different narrative than we had 200 years ago of course in this country uh but now you see the governor in georgia signing a bill others now trying to do the same thing following his lead um to uh, be able to remove da's uh to remove prosecutors we've never heard that ever in this country uh, and now that these black DAs, um, these black AGs have the power, now we want to sign a bill that removes them from office. This is clearly um, a target, uh, they're targeting specifically Fannie Willis in Georgia at the moment. Um, but it's a slippery slope. Your thoughts, Dr. Anderson? Absolutely. And part of what we're seeing, too, is that the DAs that they're removing are are not just, are trying to remove, are not just the ones that are um holding powerful white folk accountable, because we know that that kind of accountability rarely happens in American society. But they're also the ones who are talking about uh, not criminalizing women who seek abortions, uh, not criminalizing um, low-level marijuana possessions, um, about being much more progressive in terms of defining what is criminal. And because it has been the criminalization of blackness, because black is the default threat, when you have those who are rethinking the use of the criminal justice system, it makes them the threat. Because what white supremacy needs is to have that system hold and that system to look legitimate while it's doing its damage. And so having these folk in these places calling out um, Trump for inciting an insurrection, calling out Trump for lying about uh, paying a, a porn star to, to be quiet before the, the 2016 election because it might jeopardize his chances, um, calling out um, these folk who are signing these fake elector uh, bills, these fake elector documents to say that they're the legitimate electors from those states and then sending that to government offices as if it's legitimate. Calling that out 
is is destabilizing the system, and that's why we're seeing such heavy pushback because there is a diversification and a liberalization that's happening in America, and the entrenched want to hold on to power that is exclusive and that is oppressive. Mm-hmm. Speaking of Donald Trump, um, closing arguments are underway mm-hmm. right now, uh, I believe. Um, uh, in the case of E. Jean Carroll, the civil rape trial against Donald Trump. Uh, again, this is civil. It's not criminal. Even if he loses this, he won't go to jail for this. Uh, but closing arguments are underway right now uh, in the E. Jean Carroll civil rape trial against Donald Trump. And when we come forward, uh, speaking of electors, fake electors and, and elections and, and Republican governors trying to do away with with uh, black DAs and and the like, uh, Republicans, I was reading an article just this morning before I came on the air about the increasing number of Republican-controlled uh, legislatures that are targeting college students' voting power ahead of this high-stakes 2024 elections. Nothing new here, but they're ramping up. Um, they're putting their foot on the accelerator when it comes to denying students on college campuses the right to vote. Uh, again, trying to do everything they can to set the stage for the presumptive Republican nominee, Donald Trump. Uh, to have a, a, a second uh, battle with uh, Joe Biden. Uh, we'll talk about that when we come forward with Carol Anderson on KBLA Talk. Conversations that matter. You're listening to Tavis Smiley on KBLA Talk 1580. You're listening to Dr. Carol Anderson of Emory University on KBLA Talk 1580. Watching my time here is getting away. A few more things I want to cover between now and the top of the hour. Let me uh, move to this swiftly. Uh, I mentioned, uh, Dr. Anderson, moments ago that I was just reading a piece this morning about these Republican-controlled states who are targeting college students and their voting power. So, again, another effort on their part to... Uh, to uh, to deny as many people as they can a chance to vote. You are a professor on a college campus. What do you make of that reality? Um, the reality is that Gen Z has been turning out um, exponentially from where they were in 2016, and they are decision makers. And it has scared the bejeebers, and that's the <laughs> scholarly term, <laughs> out, <laughs> out of the Republicans because the Republican platform is so right-wing that it cannot resonate with this group um, in terms of reproductive rights, in terms of gun safety legislation, in terms of environmental legislation, climate change, um, in terms of voting rights. Um, It just is so antithetical to Gen Z's value system. And so instead of modifying their policies to resonate with that group and attract that group, what they're doing then is trying to figure out how do we stop them from voting. So, yes, removing uh, polling places off of campuses, denying the use of student IDs as legitimate IDs to be able to vote, uh, and a whole series of things. And, and they had practice at this. They have been at this since the 26th Amendment, and they started with Prairie View uh, down in Texas, and now it's just exploded. Yeah. Um, speaking of elections, um, I mentioned moments mm-hmm. ago that attorneys for E. Jean Carroll and Donald Trump are giving closing arguments this morning right now in the battery and defamation trial against um, uh, Donald Trump, former President Donald Trump. So those closing arguments are underway even as we speak. What, what do you... <laughs> What do you make of the fact that Donald Trump, uh, Professor Anderson, could lose this case? It's a civil trial, not a criminal case. As I said earlier, he won't go to jail because of this, but he could lose this civil case uh, and still be 
and still be and still be the presumptive the presumptive Republican nominee. I, I, how, how do you process that? I mean, I'm, I always tell people all the time and you, you teach this stuff every day. If you don't understand what I mean when I say that racism is still the most intractable issue in this country, in any one of these situations, just just flip the race. Just just change the dynamic. Right. Can, right. can you imagine Barack Obama? Lord. <laughs> running running for re-election. <laughs> Having been found guilty in a civil case, uh, a, a, a rape trial, a defamation trial. Can you imagine the Democratic Party standing with him as he ran for re-election? Donald Trump could lose this case and still be their nominee. What, what, do, you, what do you make of that? White supremacy is the most powerful drug in American society. What Donald Trump offers is throwing a kilo of pure, uncut white supremacy on the table and saying snort. And so it makes his followers um, lose all sense of, of as, I, as I wrote one time, you're willing to forsake your God, your family, and your country just to get another hit. Mm. And that's what he has done. It shows the kind of moral bankruptcy. It shows the lack of integrity. Um, remember, when he became president, we had the Access Hollywood tape. Mm -hmm. um, remember that right before he took office, he had to pay $25 million for a fraud claim for Trump University. That should have been it. We're now looking at a man who has incited the overthrow of the U.S. government, We're a man who um, is, is, has basically admitted he's about sexual assault. Um, a man who is, my mother used to say, crooked as a dog's hind leg. Mm. <laughs> and, and there's no line under which he cannot go that yeah. his followers wouldn't follow. Yeah. Speaking of lines, uh, I need a minute to, to process that snort metaphor. <laughs> we'll continue <laughs> when we come forward on KBLA Talk 1580. Interrogating your assumptions. Ideas. Let's get back to Tavis Smiley on KBLA Talk 1580. A short three minutes left uh, in this conversation with uh, this brilliant conversation with Dr. Carol Anderson. Uh, I want to get to this right quick. California's reparations task force Saturday voted to approve recommendations on how the state may compensate and apologize to black residents for generations of harm caused by discriminatory policies. The nine member committee, which first convened nearly two years ago, gave final approval at a meeting in Oakland, of all places, to, to a hefty lift of proposals that now go to state lawmakers to consider uh, for reparations legislation. I've said many times, Dr. Anderson, that the, uh, the eyes of the nation often are on California. What happens in our politics here either cast a long shadow or a long sunbeam across the nation. Given what the reparations task force did on Saturday, is that a long uh, uh, sunbeam <laughs> or a long shadow across the country? Um, I see it as a long sunbeam. Yes. Um, and, and I put it in context of Tulsa, when Black Wall Street was bombed and hundreds of millions of dollars eviscerated out of the black community, just evaporated. Those folks never got reparations. And even the folks who were survivors yeah. didn't get reparations. And so to have California moving in this direction is huge. In the last 45 seconds, uh, it is huge, by the way, and um, again, the eyes of the nation are watching what happens here in California. We will see in the coming months what uh, 
the legislature does with this. But finally, um, can you ever imagine a moment in this country, speaking of reparations, where blackness will not be the default threat? It's going to take all of us doing the heavy lifting of actually learning our history and making a conscious decision to not replicate that horrific, horrific um, racism that guided our public policies about schooling, about health care, about housing. Uh, it's going to be a while, but mm-hmm. we've got to do the work. Got to do the work. No way around it. Um, I highly recommend any book that Dr. Carol Anderson has written, but I'll tell you two of my favorites, White Rage, The Unspoken Truth of Our Racial Divide, and One Person, No Vote, How Voter Suppression is Destroying Our Democracy. She is brilliant to the 10th power. Dr. Anderson, good to have you on. We'll do it again. I hope somewhere down the road. Oh, thank you so much. This was a wonderful conversation. My great delight. Uh, just that fast. There goes our one of Tavis Smiley on KBLA Talk. 15.